Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks for checking out this week's message video. I hope that it encourages and inspires and challenges you. And I also hope that you have a group of people around you that you can talk through some of these things with. If you don't, we have Restore groups at our church that we would love for you to be involved in. You can get all of that information on our website at restoreaustin.org. We're also in our year in the greatest commandment, looking at this great commandment that Jesus gave us to love God and to love people. So ultimately, I hope that this message helps you better love God and better love the world around you. Hope you enjoy it. Good morning, everyone. I am a little sick and I, uh, lost my voice on uh, Friday morning. I went pretty hard trick-or-treating on Thursday night, <laughs> for being honest, and um, there was a, a house in uh, the neighborhood where we were trick-or-treating giving out sausage wraps and white claws, and I had seconds, so this is probably what happened. This is the result of that. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I'm up here for two reasons. One, it is literally my job, and that is part of why I'm here. And the second reason is because on a day like today, when your voice is out and you're feeling sick, you know, you can call an audible and we can get somebody else to come in. We have a bunch of really capable speakers in our church family. Um, but this is a message that has been really on my heart and mind for weeks um, leading up to this Sunday, preparing for it and thinking about it. And I just believe that, that Jesus really wants to share it with you guys through me. He's been sharing it with me over the last few weeks, and it's really started to transform some of how I'm thinking and acting. And so I, I wanted to be here for that reason, because I think that this matters. Um, and so I hope that we can dive into this together and um, we can learn from it. So I'm going to say a quick prayer, and then we're going to jump in. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your faithfulness, even um, in the midst of sickness or lost voices. God, thank you for the way that you love us. God, and as you make it so clear that the way you love us is the way we're supposed to love others, I pray that more than any other time, maybe in our whole lives, that would really sink in this morning. That we would not just be stressed about all the different things of life, but we would be looking for opportunities to love people really well because that's how you've loved us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So during college, I was a youth pastor in a small town just outside of a small city called Abilene, Texas. And I didn't go to college wanting to be a youth pastor. I didn't even go to college wanting to be in ministry. I actually went to college to play football, and then I was going to be a football coach at the end of that. So my plan was I was going to play four years. I was going to get a degree in, it was called sports and leisure studies. So I was really excited about that. And then I was going to graduate assist and become a college football coach. That was the, the plan. But during the spring of my freshman year, I had a career-ending shoulder injury, and I couldn't play football anymore. And I spent the next few months really trying to figure out what I was supposed to do with my life now that football was over. And so one day, it's the next fall, I walk into the registrar's office. P.S., how weird of a word is registrar, <laughs> right? You know, it's just like the actual definition is just somebody who works with the register, 
all right? Like they want the official that keeps the register. This is what I feel like how we got the word registrar. This is what I think. I think that there was some kind of a meeting, you know, hundreds of years ago. They were working through the English language. They were coming up with all the different words for all the different things. And there was an intern in the meeting, and they were supposed to be writing down all the words that they were going over that day, right? And one of them was that they were going to talk about what should the word be for an official who keeps the register, right? And so this guy's writing all of them down, and, but something happens, and he gets distracted, and he doesn't really write that one down, okay? And then later, his boss comes into his office, and he's like, hey, I got your report with all the new words, and, but, but the one that was missing was the official that keeps the registrar. What, 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 what is that word supposed to be? I, I know we came up with it in the room, but, but what is it? And the intern's like, registrar? <laughs> registrar? And the guy looks at him, you know, his boss looks at him, and he's like, all right, we're going to go with it. And that's how we got the word registrar. I didn't write that. That's not part of the message. That is literally just something I've been thinking about. <laughs> I walk into the registrar's office. And because I'm kind of an outgoing, kind of gregarious guy, I've gotten to know a lot of people in the registrar's office. And it's a small school too. And so anyway, one of the women in the office, this woman named Paula Fine, which man, isn't that the greatest Southern name of all time, right? Paula Fine. I'm still a great friend of mine to this day. Paula says, Zach, my church is looking for a youth pastor right now, and I think that you would be perfect for it. I remember saying something like, Miss Fine, you must not know me very well because I was actually kicked out of the last youth group that I was a part of. So this would not be a perfect job for me. But Miss Fine persisted and even printed off the application and gave it to me before I left. And so I set it on the table in my dorm room and I, I looked at it for weeks and weeks and never filled it out. And then finally one day I was like, all right, whatever, I'm just going to fill this out. I go in for the interview and for some inexplicable reason they hire me on and at 19 years old, I become a youth pastor, and I've been working in churches ever since. Now, there are, thank you, thank you for that. There are a lot of hard things about being a 19-year-old youth pastor, as you can imagine, but one of the hardest things was answering all the questions. And if you've spent much time around kids, especially middle school and high school kids, you know that they are constantly asking questions. And the most common question that I got by far was this. Is blank a sin? Is blank a sin? Is cheating on this homework a sin? Is making out with my boyfriend a sin? Is saying I read the whole book even though I only skimmed the book, is that a sin? Is coming home five minutes after curfew a sin? Is lying to my mom a sin? And I say, yeah. Well, what if she was, had this dress on and she was asking if she looked fat and she really did, but then I lied and I said she didn't. Is that a sin, right? And we giggle about this stuff, but you know, for a lot of us, we still use that question to determine the things that we do and the things that we don't do. Is blank a sin? If you grew up in the church world or you would call yourself a Christian today, chances are you've been taught to use some version of is blank a sin, in your decision-making prompts. And usually the way we answer the question is blank a sin is to try to find a Bible verse that talks about blank, right? So we say, is, is cheating a sin? So we try to go to our Bible and, and maybe even a concordance or an index or something, and we look up cheating and we find any verse in the Bible that talks about cheating, we determine, is this a sin? But I think there are a whole bunch of problems with this approach. And I wanna tell you about three. 
The first one is that it encourages loopholes. So my five-year-old will do absolutely anything to get around the rules that we've given him. And he's super smart. He's way smarter than me. And so it works most of the time. Like I'll say, hey, bud, you, you can't have dessert until after you eat all of your food. And so he'll be like, okay, that's, that's totally fine, Dad. And then, you know, he'll, I know, sorry, I'll say after all of your food is gone, right? After all of your food is eaten, right? And so he'll do things like, you know, he's got his whole food there and he'll, he'll eat a little bit and we're not looking. He'll give a little bit to his one-year-old brother who's kind of a big kid and likes to eat, you know, and so he'll pass stuff off to him. And then after a while, I'll be like, look, it's all gone. And I was like, but I said you had to eat it. And he's like, no, no, no. You said it had to be eaten. It has been eaten. Where's my treat, right? This is, we laugh, but we do this when we ask, is blank a sin? Like most of us know it's a sin to gossip about people, right? To talk about people behind their backs. So we look for loopholes, like prayer request time, right? <laughs> So we really want to talk about this person that we know that's kind of having this hard time, but we know you're not supposed to do that. It's kind of a sin. So during prayer request time, we're like, hey, guys, I, I, I got a prayer request for Susie, you know, and I, I shouldn't even tell you what it's about, but I'm going to tell you what it's about. She's just, you know, and then we just go on to this, like, all of Susie's life story and just spilling it in front of everyone, and we're gossiping in the name of a prayer request. That's a loophole, right? We look for loopholes, that's the first one. Is blank a sin? I think it encourages loopholes. The second one is this. It promotes proof texting. Now, proof texting is kind of what I talked about earlier, is where you go and look for a text to prove whatever it is that you want to say. All right, so you go in the Bible and you try to find something that says something that props up whatever you think. But did you know that you can make the Bible basically say anything you want it to say and support anything you want it to support? Consider that the Crusades, American slavery, the Rwandan genocide, gay conversion therapy, and the Trail of Tears were all propagated and led by people quoting Bible verses. Quoting Bible verses. If you look up the defense of American slavery, people that wanted to continue to have slaves in America in the South, over half of the written defenses for American slavery were written by Southern pastors quoting the Bible. If you want to make the Bible say something, you can make the Bible say something. This is still happening today. Just last year, a Bible verse was used by a leader of our country to justify taking children away from their parents and putting them into cages at the border. Stood on a stage, had a podium in front, Quoted a Bible verse. That's fine. This is still happening. If I ask most of you in this room if polygamy is a sin, to have multiple spouses, most of you would probably say yes. But the most common depiction of marriage in the Bible is polygamous. Do you know that? Because the Bible is not set up to be used to answer questions like, is blank a sin? Is the story of God and the story of humanity. And spoiler alert, it's not always pretty. It tells the real stuff that has happened over the course of human history. So that's the first two. Now lastly, is blank a sin, is old covenant. It is old covenant. Here's what I mean by that. 
we read about the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. That's the first 39 books in our Bible. In fact, Old Testament is simply the 5th century Latin translation of the Greek phrase for Old Covenant. So it literally means Old Covenant. And at its most basic, the Old Covenant is 613 laws given by God to the Jewish people through Moses. And it's full of things that we struggle to understand. It forbids things like eating pork or shaving your sideburns or mixing fabric in your clothes. But we have to remember, this covenant was not given to us. It was given to ancient Hebrews in a completely different time and place and culture from ours. And it's also important to point out that this covenant made sense for them. When we understand the 613 laws in their context, they're actually kind of amazing. In fact, marginalized people of all kinds, slaves, women, children, immigrants, they were all treated significantly better under the old covenant laws than any other nation at the time. But when the people of the old covenant wanted to make a decision, they would ask the same question that many of us are still asking today. Is blank a sin? And they would unroll their big parchment paper and if they got all the 613 laws and try to find it, or they would go to the priest who had all the 613 laws memorized and ask them, hey, is blank a sin? But keeping all the commandments and even memorizing and enforcing them like the priest did didn't actually make you a kind and loving person. Jesus makes that pretty clear when he's yelling at some religious leaders in Jerusalem. He says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. God knew that these 613 laws, they, they, they weren't cutting it. They had a specific time and a specific place, but it was time for something new. He knew that his kids needed a better way to make decisions, a better way of life entirely, not an improved version of something old, but something entirely new. And so God became a person, a human, in Jesus Christ. And he came to earth to usher in something called the new covenant. Last week, we started a teaching series called With Everything. You just saw the bumper for it. It's all about the first half of this greatest commandment given to us by Jesus. This story is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and their accounts of Jesus' life. And it happens when a religious leader asks Jesus this question. He says, of all the commandments, of all the 613 laws, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So in this, with everything series, we're spending a week on each of these four ways Jesus calls us to love God in that first half of the greatest commandment, right? With all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Last week, we kicked it off. We talked about loving God with our heart, which simply means to choose joy despite whatever circumstances that we're in. This week, we're talking about loving God with all our soul. 
Now, in case you weren't here, I want to give you the same caveat as last week, and that is that there are tons of ways to define these four words, and even varying ways that the biblical authors define them. Our goal in this series is not to find the exact right way to define all of these words. Our goal is to describe them in such a way that when they're all put together, they make up the whole of a person, because we're called to love God with everything. Does that make sense? Nod your head if that makes sense. Okay. With that being said, I think the most helpful way for us to understand soul here is as a synonym for will. Okay? The best way to understand soul is as a synonym for our will. Our soul is what we use to make decisions. And as we've already said, for most Christians, our soul decision-making has traditionally come down to asking the question, is blank a sin? So we're trying to make a decision to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, like Jesus asked us to. And the way we usually do that is we look at a problem, we look at a situation, we look at a temptation, and we say, is this a sin? Well, my hope for this morning is that we trade in, is blank a sin for a different and much better question? One that leads us to loving God with all our soul by making much better decisions. Because making Jesus-led decisions is too important. It's too important. And I think being guided by as blank a sin has actually caused more problems than it has solved. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the new question that we are proposing as our guide to decision making. And then I want to spend the rest of our time together trying to show you that I'm not the one who originally proposed it. Jesus is. And it's actually not a new question. It's a really, really old one. Does that sound good? All right. One of you is excited. Here's our new question. What does love look like? What does love look like? The very end of Jesus' life on earth, just hours before he would die on the cross, he is gathered with his closest friends around a table doing something called the Passover meal. And it's during that time that Jesus, God in the flesh, he uses that to officially mark the end of the old covenant in the beginning of the new covenant. Here's how it happened. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So notice Jesus didn't say it was a new covenant. He said it was the new covenant. This isn't the old covenant all dressed up. This is something completely brand new. And not only is it new, it's actually way, way better than the old covenant. Listen to the author of the New Testament letter called Hebrews The ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one. The new covenant is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. 
By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So what is this new covenant? To keep 613 laws? No. It's the command that we have devoted this entire year to understanding and practicing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. But that night, around the Passover table with his closest friends, Jesus gets even more specific. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus tells us to love one another as he has loved us. Now listen, this is less complicated than 613 laws, but it's way more demanding It's not the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I like to call this the platinum rule. Do unto others as Jesus has done to you. That's way harder. Way harder. Jesus could have gone one by one around the table that night and reminded each person there just how much he had loved them all the ways he had demonstrated his love for them. Do you realize how powerful it would have been to be around the table that night hearing Jesus say, love everyone as I have loved you? I love the way that Andy Stanley's pastor reimagines how this would have happened. It's like Jesus said, Matthew, remember the first time we met? You were despised by your community and an embarrassment to your family, but I invited you to follow me anyway. Matthew, extend that same grace to everyone you meet for the rest of your life. Love others as I have loved you. Nathaniel, remember the day we met? Remember what you said about me? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You dissed my town, my family, my childhood friends, but I invited you anyway. Extend that same grace and forgiveness to everybody you meet. Love others as I have loved you. Guys, you all remember that afternoon? My blood-drinking, flesh-eating illustration offended and confused the crowd, and we started losing them. They started leaving. Every single one of you was thinking about leaving me to fend for myself, and I could have left you to fend for yourselves. You certainly deserved it, but I didn't, and I never brought it up again. Do unto others as I have done to you. You know, and then I imagine if it was this scenario that Jesus could have just gotten really quiet, looked at every single person in the face, paused for a few seconds as he caught every one of their eyes. He said, you think you know what it's like to be loved by me, but in a few hours, in a few days, I will love you in a way that you will never forget. Because he would go on to lay his life down for them and then to raise it back up again for them, and for you, and for me, for every single person who has ever lived or will live. That is how he calls us to love others. Love others as I have loved you. 
What does love look like? It looks like Jesus. And don't forget what Jesus said next. He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Listen, the way we love people is the single identifying characteristic of a Jesus follower. I'm gonna say that again, let it sink in. The way we love people is the single identifying characteristic of a Jesus follower. By this, everyone will know you are my disciple. The word this in Jesus' quote is what we call a demonstrative pronoun. And it's used to point to one specific thing, not one of many things, one specific thing. Jesus didn't say loving others is one of the ways that people will know you're my disciples. He said loving others is the one way that people will know that you love me, you follow me. Jesus' primary concern for his followers is not that we believe something, it's that we do something. Jesus' primary concern for his followers doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what you believe. Don't hear me saying that, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that his primary concern for them was not that they believed a bunch of stuff, believed it all right, had all of their theology ducks in a row. His primary concern for them was that they loved other people. By this, people will know that you follow me. This new command closes all the loopholes. It puts an end to the dangerous practice of proof texting and it grounds us firmly in the new covenant. Why? Because in any given situation, when we are faced with a decision, y'all, we usually know what love looks like. We usually know what love looks like. So if we truly want to love the Lord our God with all our soul, if we want to love God with our decision making, we will stop looking for loopholes. We will stop trying to prove text, and we will start loving people the way Jesus has loved us. We'll stop asking questions like, is blank a sin? And start asking the question, what does love look like? Think about it like this. Some of you, this is really going to blow your mind. All of Paul's letters in the New Testament that we have are basically him explaining what Loving others the way Jesus has loved us looks like in the context of each individual church and city and culture. That's what those letters are. They're commentary on this command. It's not a whole bunch of new commands. It's commentary on this command. Love others the way I have loved you, Jesus says. So Paul is writing these letters and saying, hey, in the city of Colossae, with everything that you have going on, with the issues you're having in your church, this is what it looks like to love others as Jesus has loved you. Hey, in the city of Corinth, with the stuff you have going on, with the the crazy temple they have going on with there, with the, the child prostitution, all that stuff, this is what it looks like to love others as I have loved you in your city and in your culture. Hey, in Rome, when you're under the oppressive Roman government in the center of it all and you're you're losing your jobs and, and you're being physically beaten and persecuted for your faith, this is what it looks like in your context and culture to love others the way Jesus has loved you. That's what those letters are. They're reminding each church family of the good news about Jesus and explaining what love looks like in the light 
of the unique issues facing their community. I want to end by giving us a few examples of how this new question can play out in our lives. One of the questions I got all the time when I was a youth pastor was, is watching pornography a sin? And I would always say yes, but I was so self-conscious that I couldn't point to a Bible verse about it, right? Because that was what I grew up in. You had to have a Bible verse. You had to have a proof text. So when the inevitable follow-up question came and the youth group member asked, why? I, I didn't really know what to say, right? Because I couldn't say because the Bible says it is, because it doesn't. I couldn't say because God says it is, because if God's word is in the Bible, he doesn't. It was a loophole that a lot of guys I knew used to watch porn whenever they wanted. Well, Jesus never talked about it. It's not in the Bible, right? So it must not be a sin. That's a loophole. But the new covenant closes the loophole because the new covenant doesn't ask, is watching pornography a sin? It asks, what does love look like? Does love look like people? Mostly at-risk women being objectified on camera so that other people, mostly oppressive men, can make money off of them? No. I challenge any of you to watch pornography and ask the question, what does love look like, and say it looks like that. Also, virtually every study ever done has shown strong links between the pornography industry and the sex trafficking industry. So when you watch pornography, you are helping fuel sex trafficking. Men, women, and children enslaved and forced into horrors that most of us cannot imagine. Y'all, I don't need chapter and verse in the Bible to tell me love doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like modern day slavery. It doesn't look like women being objectified and drugged. Okay, here's another one. If I see someone asking for money on a street corner, I ask, is it a sin to ignore them? Is it a sin to ignore them? I can find proof texts on both sides. Ready? Check these out. <clears throat> Give to everyone who asks you. That's Luke 6.30. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. I've heard both of these verses used to justify different interactions with people asking for money on the street. So depending on how I'm feeling or my particular worldview, I can use a proof text in the Bible to justify whatever I want to do, right? If I want to just ignore them, I want to walk by them, I want to not worry about it, I can be like, hey, remember 2 Thessalonians say, if you're not going to work, you're not going to eat, right? But if I, if I want to help them, I can remember Jesus saying, hey, give to those who ask of you, and I can remember that, and I can go do that. But that's not the new covenant, the new covenant doesn't ask, is ignoring someone asking for money a sin? The new covenant asks, what does love look like? And love does not look like ignoring anyone, especially someone in need. Okay, one more. How about, is it a sin not to tithe to the church? This is a fun one. Well, if we're using old covenant thinking... We just go look at one of those 613 laws. Leviticus, it says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. Right? Pretty clear. Every tithe, no matter if you're a farmer or a rancher or a fruit person that gets the fruit from the trees, I don't know. I'm not in agriculture. 
Whatever you do, the tithe is the Lord's. But that's old covenant thinking. As members of the new covenant, we should not be asking, what is the bare minimum I can give away in order to keep from sinning? Because that's basically what that question is. What is the bare minimum I can give away in order to keep from sinning? We shouldn't be asking that. The new covenant asks, what does love look like? And love looks like living a generous life. Listen to what Paul says about living generously in his letter to the church in Corinth. Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy which has overflowed in rich generosity. Now let me pause there for a second. Explain what's happening. So remember what I said about Paul's letters. He's, this is commentary. He's fleshing out what does love look like in your specific context and culture. So he's talking to this church in Corinth and saying, what does love look like? And he's actually talking about these other churches in Macedonia and saying, they know what love looks like when it comes to generosity. So follow their example. Even though they are poor, they are filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more. And they did it of their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God has wanted them to do. So, we have urged Titus, who encouraged your, first, your giving in the first place, to return to you and encourage you to finish this ministry of giving. Since you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love from us. Listen, Corinth, you're doing really great in a lot of ways. You are living out what love looks like in a bunch of ways, but I also want you to excel in this gracious act of giving. Now listen to this. I am not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is. That's powerful. I am testing how genuine your love is. Genuine love looks like living a generous life. It looks like giving to your neighbors when they're in need. It looks like making dinner for that family that you know that just had a baby or somebody's sick or is having a hard time. It looks like giving generously to your church family and to other nonprofits who are doing good things in this city and around the world. Genuine love looks like living a generous life. This is what it looks like to move away from is blank a sin and toward what does love look like. And listen, you guys are smart. You're smart. I just said this a second ago, but I wanna say it again you know what love looks like in the vast majority of the situations. You know love doesn't look like objectifying women on camera. You know love doesn't look like ignoring someone in need. You know love doesn't look like giving the minimum amount to stay on God's good side. You know that. But even though it's much simpler than looking for loopholes or finding the right verse or, or memorizing all of the 613 covenant laws, 
it's still hard. And I think it's actually even harder. It's simpler, but it's harder. Because it takes intentionality, and it takes sacrifice. True love is sacrificial love. That's what Jesus taught us. He showed us that. When he said, love others the way I have loved you, he loved us sacrificially. But y'all, I want you to just pause with me for a second and think about what life could be like if we actually did this. Think about how our world would be transformed if we made decisions by asking, what does love look like in any given situation? It would change everything. We would stop searching our Bibles for proof texts that prop up our own worldview, and we would start looking for examples in our Bibles of how to love people really well. Teenagers and single adults would stop pressuring each other to look or act or do certain things during the dating process and start doing everything they could to make each other feel honored and cared for because they're not asking, what can I get from this? Or, hey, is, is this a sin and I'll just go right around it, I'll loophole around it, I'll find a proof text around it. No, they're asking, what does love look like with my partner here? What does honoring them look like? What does caring for them look like? Parents, we would stop putting our kids in every single sport or activity under the sun, and we would start resting a little bit more so that we could be generous with our time when someone is in need. Marriages would be submission competitions where each spouse is trying to outdo the other one in serving and caring for each other. If we did this, churches would stop building higher walls to keep people out. They would start building longer tables to welcome anyone and everyone who wants to sit with Jesus. If we started asking, what does love look like? How has Jesus loved me? Okay, well, I want to love people like that. Christians, if we did this, we would treat people so well that even those outside of our faith community would be interested in the Jesus we claim to follow. Not because we told them what we believed, but because we showed them what we believed by actively loving them and the other people around us. This would change everything. So this is my challenge to myself and to each and every one of you this week, when you are making decisions, stop asking, is blank a sin or, or any other of the self-centered questions that we are so often tempted to ask? And start asking, what does love look like? What does love look like? You drive by someone on the street corner, what does love look like? You interact with someone at work, what does love look like? Someone's being a jerk to you in your class? What does love look like? Your spouse, you feel like they're just not, not caring, not interested, not listening, not being helpful. Instead of saying, What's, what can I do to kind of get back at them without sinning? Maybe ask, what does love look like? What does Jesus' love look like? And then do it. That's my challenge for us this week. 
then you call me or text me or email me or come back next Sunday and you tell me how everything has been transformed because I'm telling you it will. It will. Your life will change. Your interactions with people inside the faith, outside the faith will change drastically if we start asking the question before we make every decision, what does love look like? Let me pray. God, I thank you for this morning and this time to be together. I thank you for holding out my voice that whole time. I thank you that you loved us so beautifully, so sacrificially, so wonderfully that we can't help but know how to love other people. So that when we are in any given situation and we ask, what does love look like, God? Usually, most of the time, with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we know the answer to that. We know that it looks like caring for people who are in need. We know that it looks like honoring people, sacrificially loving people. And God, we know that because you showed us. You showed us. Please, God, help us love people Empower us to love people like you have loved us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.